welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. My goal with these podcasts is to always give you, the listener, something real and practical to take away that you can implement into your salon business. Hopefully, we achieve it more often than not. Here's a little bit of useless information for you. There are now more than one million podcasts in the world. Obviously, most of them aren't hairdressing orientated, but reviews from you are what helps people find us. So if you'd like to leave us a review, please go to Apple Podcasts, scroll to the bottom of the page, select ratings and reviews, and write a review. It only takes a couple of minutes, and we would be very appreciative. We got another five-star review recently from Carleen Sanchez in Nevada, who said, I absolutely adore Anthony's books and podcasts. Thank you for all you do for the salon industry. You're very much appreciated by me. Thank you, Carleen. We appreciate you taking the time to do that too. So let's get on with today's show. Hairdressing is a career that starts for most of us behind the chair, building a column of clients. And for some people, they only ever want to work behind the chair. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it can be very rewarding at every level. But for others, their career branches off in different directions and they seek other opportunities, but often still within the industry. My guest on today's podcast is Sophie Hill, who is a former salon hairdresser who transitioned through various areas of the industry and eventually formed her own successful PR company and has now morphed once again into the head of marketing with London-based salon group Headmasters. So in today's podcast, Sophie and I talk about the opportunities that there are in a hairdressing career, how the skills you learn as a hairdresser can help enormously if you choose to transition into other career paths. We also talk about the changing role of PR and marketing and how social media is impacting on that. And we talk about what salons should be focusing on as far as marketing and PR goes as we come out of lockdown and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Sophie Hill. Hi, Anthony. Hi, how are you? It's really good to have you here, Sophie, uh, especially Thanks. seeing as how we've already started and now had to restart because I forgot to push the record button. And it's <laughs> going to be fantastic. So let's start off with how I start off with all my guests. I get them to introduce themselves and to give us a little bit of their two-minute backstory. So who is Sophie Hill? Okay, I'm Sophie Hill. I'm head of marketing for Headmasters Salons, a group of salons based in the southeast. And um, I am I'm a hairdresser. Um, I've been a technician for L'Oreal. I have been a PR for L'Oreal. I've had a PR company. I've part owned a salon, and now I'm head of marketing. Okay, well, you've certainly done a lot, and that's actually one of the reasons. <laughs> that I wanted to get you on today. And that is because a lot of people sort of see it as, well, if I become a hairdresser, that's what I am. I'm a hairdresser for life. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I've got lots of friends who've been standing behind a chair doing clients for 40 years, and they still absolutely love it. And that's great. But for other people, they see, you know, starting off as a hairdresser is a 
a stepping stone that creates lots of other opportunities, both within this industry and sometimes outside of this industry. And it's been a little bit like that for you, which is you know one of the things I wanted you uh, to talk to, because I, I really do think that hairdressing is a great career opportunity. And you're a really good example of someone who has um, you know picked up those opportunities and ran with it. So can you talk a little bit about the transitioning that you've made from you know all those things you just mentioned? What, what has the transitioning been like? What's made you do that? What, what is it that you're, you're looking looking for and how has your uh, career evolved over the last you know x amount of years I'm happy to do that um, it's one of my it's one of my biggest biggest bugbears that um, the hairdressing career in hairdressing is seen as something you do when you can't think of anything else to do or you're not good enough to do something else yeah. and that really upsets me um, and Partly because I remember as when I went to get my O-level results, which is a very long time ago, so I'm calling them O-levels. Um, and uh, my teacher, one of the teachers said, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I'm going to college and doing hairdressing. I'd already applied and got it. And he said, don't be ridiculous. You're too intelligent to do that. And I was so upset. And I went and spoke to my mom and she said, you can do whatever you want to do. And you will be good at what you're happy doing. You're not going to be good at something you don't want to do. I didn't want to go to university. I didn't want, it wasn't me. And luckily I had a mother who appreciated that that isn't the route for everybody. Yeah. I do worry actually that this is a route that they push, people are pushed down now. And I don't think it suits everybody. Mm. Um, but that being said, I think that it was always, I was always brought up to believe that a career is a journey and you don't start with your dream job. You, you grow into your, your dream job and you kind of learn things about yourself along the way, I think. And um, I, don't, I stopped enjoying being in a salon, I think basically because I'm too grumpy. And so I think working in a salon full time is so hard. You have to be on all the time with everybody. You can't be different. And I think that is actually incredibly hard and something that people don't really appreciate about being a hairdresser. Yeah. Um, and I think that hairdressing gives you the um, amazing skills that are totally, totally transferable. Um, and hairdressing has given me, um, it's taken me abroad because I think it's a skill that travels, um, not <laughs> clearly not at the moment, but it's uh, a skill that travels um, to different countries. You can always do, do hairdressing. Um, but also you learn so many other, other things, um, how to communicate, how to listen, how to work out what somebody wants. And PR to me is really just an extension of that. It's just my clients. I, I still talk about headmasters as a client. I talk about um, all my PR, people I used to look after with PR as clients. And in my head, they're just like hairdressing clients. They need something. And I'm trying to work out what it is they need and what's best for them, which is what you do as a hairdresser. Um, I have been very fortunate in that I've had very supportive people along the way. And I was very lucky to um, transition from a salon into PR by going through uh, L'Oreal and working for L'Oreal. And I applied for a job as a technical consultant and I was a technical consultant with them for two years. And in that time, managed to see, open my eyes, I suppose, and see that there were other things that I could do and badgered them mercilessly to go into the communications department. Um, and they... Uh, created a job um, based on the fact that I had knowledge of hair salons and of hairdressing. And it was my job at the time was to find opportunities for the portfolio of artistic hairdressers. 
um, PR opportunities and working with um, the PR manager who worked on all the products. Um, but it soon became evident when I was in the press office that I would be called upon to explain products to journalists all the time um, mm -hmm. because I had that knowledge from training in the products. So they're all skills that once you... Yes, of course, there are things to learn when you do PR, like anything, but there were things that I could transfer over from hairdressing. And yes. I just find it interesting. And I think that the industry is fantastic. And I think it does offer opportunities. And I mean, headmasters themselves, we have people who work in the head office who started as junior, you know, our head of um, our chief, uh, chief people officer, CPO, Laura, she started off as a junior. Mm. And she's now on the senior management team um, for the whole company. And she's amazing because her knowledge of the company, but also the industry is phenomenal. And so yeah. that's very valuable. Um, yeah. So it is definitely something that you can do. Okay. I mean, that, that, that a lot of people are familiar with that transition from being a salon stylist to working as a technical consultant with, a, with one of the brands. Um, yeah. And, you know, you've then taken that next step to – you know, work within another area of that brand, so communications yeah. department. Then you left there and you started your own independent PR company, yeah? Uh, you had that for, for X years and then you've left there yeah. and now you're working for this uh, major salon group in the UK. I think you said there were 56 salons in the group, headmasters, and, and you're head of marketing. So that's, a, that's quite an amazing, you know, career path for anyone to, to go through, especially when you go back to that time with a headmaster or whatever it was at your school says, don't be stupid, you're too intelligent for that. I mean, it, it shows how, you know, intelligence can be, you know, utilized in lots of different areas of this yeah. industry um, at lots of different levels. So, yeah, kudos to you. Um, so, so now you're in charge of marketing for this big brand. Mm. Now, what I want you to do is to talk about the different roles, the different functions of marketing, PR, and social media. Because in my head, um, you know, I was talking to someone just before I got on this call, and we, we happened to say in the conversation that Instagram is 10 years old this year. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people sort of feel Instagram has been around forever, but I've been around forever. And, and one <laughs> of the things that I notice is that, there seems to be a lot less PR agents about now that, that a lot of people have, have, you know, they've sort of morphed social media, PR and marketing all together. Mm. So talk about the different roles and functions of PR, marketing and social media. I mean, to be honest, marketing, uh, marketing and PR have always, people have always merged those together, but they, they are separate roles and they, they require separate skills. Um, your marketing, I mean, what, what I cover for marketing is basically down to everything that goes into the salon. So the how the salon looks, what the logo looks like, um, what are our core messages, uh, what's our brand about and who are we trying to market to? And then looking at ways that we can communicate those key messages to our clients. And that all falls under marketing. Advertising will fall under marketing. It's just you pay to place your marketing messages somewhere else other than mm -hmm. on your own site. So marketing for me is everything, the bubble around you. So your salon, your staff, the services that you offer, uh, your website, how that looks. That's all your marketing. That's internal, if you like. Advertising then is pushing that those messages out externally, but paying for it. And when you pay for it, you can tell people whatever you want. So you yeah. can say to somebody, this is me, this is what I do, and I am great. 
Mm-hmm. What PR does, PR sits on top of that. So PR is there to get other people to say that you're great. Yeah. In order to do that, you have to find some way of get of speaking to and engaging an influencer. Now, an influencer, just the term used to be used just to cover anyone who can influence your business. It's yep. been hijacked a bit by social media and social media influencers. But influencer is just a journalist is an influencer. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be that a key business owner in your local area is an influencer. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all these people that can influence your business. And that's what PR covers. So PR is finding those people, finding out how you can excite them with something that you're doing or that you've got to offer and getting those people to tell their contacts that you're great. Mm -hmm. And the value of that is that, think about it, somebody uh, somebody rings you on the phone and they say, hi, I make this product and it's amazing. It's the best product you could ever buy. You're going to think, well, you would say that. (laughs) You made it. Yeah. When someone else phones and say, I bought this product and oh my God, it's amazing. You believe them because yeah. there's no vested interest in why they've said that. So that's why it's important that there's a, some people make the distinction that PR is free advertising. Uh, that is the wrong term. It, it's not free because obviously you have to pay to build those relationships, mm-hmm. but you, you're not paying for them to say something specific. Yeah, And so in those terms, you also have to accept that sometimes they will say things that you don't want them to say. So if you engage a key influencer and let's say you, they come and they have a terrible experience, you can't then stop them saying they had a terrible experience and that's negative PR. You can obviously try and mitigate that and hopefully that won't happen. But because you're not paying for it, they have editorial control. And mm-hmm. what's happened with social media People get confused. Social media hasn't replaced PR. Social media hasn't replaced marketing. What's happened is social media sites like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter are really good ways to communicate your marketing messages and to your clients, but also potentially to potential new clients. So, for example, you might put something up on Instagram that years ago you'd have put on a leaflet and put through people's doors. Yeah. I was social media as a new leaflet. Um, if you then start to engage someone else on social media and ask them to tell other people about you, that is the PR side of social media. Yeah. So just so social media itself splits into two roles. So at Headmasters, we internally, we look after our social media sites. So we look after our Instagram page, Facebook and Twitter, and we put our key messages out there. And we support our salons who have their own individual pages with content for that. And we also feed off their content because they have fantastic content in the salons. Um, where the PR comes in is we actually use a PR agency separately to engage influencers on um, through in social media to act like influencers, like journalists. So they do exactly the same job, but speaking to influencers, uh, social media influencers to get them to come to the salons, try different treatments or come to a new launch, stuff like that. So the roles are still, social media isn't one thing. It's split, still split into the marketing side of social media and the PR side of social media. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it it does. Um, I suppose what I'm, uh, and it makes a lot of sense what you just said. I mean, is my observation correct that less salons have a PR agent today than what used to 10 years ago? 
Um, I don't know if I don't know if that's true because I still know a heap of PRs. Right. Um, okay. I think what's changed is that the PR remit is different. Yeah. So um, what you will find with um, when you're a single salon, there's a lot you can do on your own, and I've always been I've always said that you should always start with trying to do your own PR yeah. because it does two things. It gives you, um, it demonstrates to you, one, how much time it takes, two, how it can be quite soul-destroying, yeah. and three, it then gives you a basis of what you want to ask someone else to do for you. If you just right. blindly say, I need a PR, why? Well, everyone else has got one. Mm. That isn't a good enough reason mm. to get the PR. You've got to think, yeah. what do we want to achieve with it? Well, I so let's say, for example, you say, well, I want these, I would like these influ- these influences in my area to write about me. Well, okay, so contact them yourself and see if they'll write about you. And if they won't, then you need an intermediary, someone mm. who already knows them that has a relationship. Because PR yeah. is very much about relationships. Um, you can't, you know... It's like going out and it's like someone giving out on a first date. You, you've got to wine and dine and get what you want. So that's the that's PR. That's the PR side. Um, yeah. But definitely social media, what it has done is given people a bigger shop window. Yeah. A wider shop window. So mm-hmm. you can reach more people almost by accident because you don't know who's, who's um, looking in at that yeah. time. Sure. Um, I know so I've got um, a friend who used to be uh, one of my best clients. I love him to pieces. And he identified really early on that Facebook for him is the most, his clients engage brilliantly with Facebook. Now, he still uses Instagram and he uses Instagram for different kind of things, really more industry things and sometimes finding models and that kind of thing. But his he gives all his core messages, any promotions or any news he needs to tell them about the salon. And his, his um, clients are so engaged on his Facebook page that it, that really works for him. And so he's managed to use that rather than maybe emailing his clients mm-hmm. So because they're so engaged. But for example, we find that Instagram is better for us. So we get more response through on through Instagram, through posting on Instagram, doing stories more than our Facebook page. And so I think we have to do is try it and see what works with your clients because it's important to use it to talk to your talk to your clients. It's just as important as using it to try and get other clients in. Because you know what people are like when you watch social media, they can be quite fickle. So yeah. there's no guarantee that just because they see something on social media, they go, well, I'm definitely going to go there. You know, it's that old rule. They've got to see something over and over again. I always say to people, with those two distinctions, you know, Facebook and Instagram, when people say, which one should I use? I always, I always say, use the one where your market is, you know, because yeah. that's, you know, and, and I think I know who you're talking about. I may be completely wrong, but I think I know who you're talking about. And although he only has one salon and you have 65 salons, I would have thought that you had a very similar target market. So... Yeah. Um, yeah. you, you have a different target market. Like, like yeah. in, in other words, when you're talking about age demographics, a lot of people will go, yeah. I was talking to someone the other day on the podcast, I think, and she said uh, that she uses Instagram because her target market is people under the age of 35. And yeah. she says, you know, uh, 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 Facebook is generally an older generation. 
And and I go, I went, yeah, fair enough. I'd understand that. Now, um, yeah. do you think that rule of thumb applies or not necessarily? It's a good rule. It's a good rule of thumb. Right. It is a good rule. Um, but I tend to, I think sometimes with Instagram, um, I suppose with Facebook, you can be a bit meatier in what you're saying. And I yeah. think sometimes clients like that because yeah. you're not doing it to – not doing it to attract somebody to other people you're, you're doing it because they've logged on they've, they've gone yeah we like you and we like what you say and they interact with you and I think there's more okay. interaction and so yes I would say that it probably is a bit older but I agree with you we have a lot of older clients um I say older you know yeah. program sort of clients however we find that with our business we have we have um a very good e-marketing um, campaign. And so we identify the people who like to be emailed. So because we cover everything, we can kind of get them wherever they are, basically. Yeah. Okay. But we have, but also we have 56 salons and we have salons that are based. So we've got one salon in, you know, the original salon is based in um, Wimbledon Village, but we have someone in Camden Town. So we Yeah, very have different demographic. Clients. Yeah, sure. But we have, although we have a core... Um, core messages and we have um, a core brand image, we do have to take a little bit of license to change that up for talking to slightly different people. So we'll quite often, if we're looking at putting some, something in place, we'll say, who's it for? Who's going to be interested in this? Okay. So we understand that some salons that will suit better than others. Yeah. Um, the company itself has a has a rule that if we put something into one salon, it's available in all, because mm -hmm. they didn't want to go down the route where you could get something over in their Reading salon, but you couldn't get it in their Wimbledon salon, or you couldn't get it in one of their London salons. That if it's a brand initiative, then it goes out across the whole brand. What that does mean is that some salons marketing initiatives will work better for them than others. It just really sure. depends on yeah, yeah. what it is who we're aiming at. But yeah. franchisees are pretty queued up to that and they do understand that there'll be a promotion that comes on that is just brilliant for them and there'll be others that they'll work slightly differently or they'll massage around just to, you know, work it with their clients or understand it's not okay. going to be quite successful with them. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this. The average person listening to this is um, going to be female uh, purely because most people in our industry are female. So let's imagine 75% of this audience is a female audience and uh, that most of them, so 75% of them again, are going to be salon owners. And uh -huh. I would suggest that 75% of them um, are going to be single salon owners. So as a... Um, you know, talking about PR to them, if you were saying to them, okay, you should be doing your own PR because you don't have the budget to, to you know, employ an external agency, uh, what would be the three things that you would be telling that salon owner that he or she should be focusing on from a PR perspective? Three bullet points. Mm, oh, God, you're not, I hate to be lost with just do three things. Um, okay, so you're a single salon owner. I would say, first of all, you've got to make sure you've got your marketing in place. So you've got your core things in place before you even start thinking about it and your PR. And then think small. So think, okay, so I'm PRing my salon. I've got one salon. So where are my clients? They're all of, they're around me. They're my local area. So who is an, influence clo an influencer close to me? And you can actually, you can use um, Instagram, you can use Google to find people who are on social media who are based near you. Um, 
but you can don't forget your local business owners your still your local papers they all have access to digital online they're all digital online now so they're producing much more news all of the time and i always say that pr is simply just telling people about what you're doing all the time so if you do something fantastic in your salon then tell tell people about it it doesn't matter you don't lose anything if nothing comes of that because you've done the activity so you may as well just go that extra mile and just say, hey, this is what we're doing. Hey, did you know that we offer this? And maybe it's something that, that you're the first person in your area to be offering or you're offering a brand that people wouldn't normally see or you've got something launching. Then let the influencers in your area know. When you're a single salon, it can be difficult to get sort of a nationwide, you know, in terms of PR, in terms of um, print media. Yeah. Um, because they can be London centric, but yeah. that's not necessarily going to bring you clients. Yeah. So I think focusing on um, speaking to your clients and oh, I will share. Actually, I'm sorry, I have to share this with you, Anthony. We did um, some market research because we were looking at uh, what a, who our clients are, where they are, and what brings them to the salon, and what if they've come to the salon, why did they leave, and things like that. We did this whole survey, and yeah. we asked we asked clients. What was what were the main reasons for them visiting a salon? And we gave them a list of things. So it was um, from social media, advert, um, I walk past the salon, um, it's just in my local area, somebody recommended, uh, I got a leaflet. There's a range of things that were on offer. So we read it in a magazine. And still, the overwhelming biggest reason was recommended by somebody. Yeah, definitely. It's overriding. And yeah. the social media was 14%. Yeah. And, but interestingly, in the, in the younger bracket, it mm. then jumped to right. much higher proportion, for, chose their hairdressing salon by social media. But right. still okay. overwhelming was somebody has personally recommended that salon to me. Yeah. And so we always bring everything back to that. And we're, we're always trying to find better ways or more inventive ways to get our clients to do our PR for us, to talk to other people for us. Mm. I think that's important. That's so important when you have a single salon. And I think you're better placed to do that, actually, yeah. um, when well, one salon. Yeah, social proof is the number one thing, you know, that, that to bring in new clients. Someone you know recommends – someone you know is out for dinner, sees your hair and goes, I love your hair, Sophie, where did you get it done? And you say, I got it done here. And it's like, bang, that is, that is by far the single biggest way. Um, the argument is that social media is doing that on steroids, that you're, you're doing it to a, a much wider audience potentially. If, if I can get it into – if I can get – if, I, if, if instead of getting you to recommend me to one of your friends, if I can get you on your Instagram feed to, to um, you know, put a picture of your hair saying, I've just had my hair done by Anthony, um, it's fantastic, I really love it, then the three or 400 followers you've got all see yeah. it. So it's sort of taking the same yeah. thing and, and putting yeah. it on steroids. Yeah, okay. Um, well, well, in this time that we're currently in with uh, COVID-19, um, mm. how should salons be focusing their marketing effort 
uh, their marketing budget, their their time, their spend, etc. I, you know, if I had a definitive answer, then I would probably be very rich. Um, and I've been discussing it with the team at Headmasters since we reopened. I mean, obviously, we've had three months of closure, um, which has severely affected turnover and um, therefore budgets. So we've had to take a look at what was our marketing plan, which is put in place at the beginning of the year, and look at what's realistic. Um, what are we still going to do? What are we going to take out? And what do we need to add in because of COVID? Yeah. So what we're finding is that we have, um, we're focusing very much, since we've opened, we're focusing very much on bringing people back in um, because I still think there's a little bit of um, fear factor for people, um, people who just want to leave it that little bit longer. Yeah. Um, and so we had a big wave of people coming back in and they were the people that were desperate and have been saying they're desperate on social media for a long time and they came in. But we've because we um, keep a lot of data on our clients, we can tell how many of our clients who are regular clients yet haven't yet come through those doors. So we've, we've amended our marketing strategy slightly to start to talk to those people and to reassure them our social media immediately. You know, we had to obviously go out on our social media and telling people what we were doing in the salon and the safety protocols and all of that. But it's not very sexy. So as soon as we had um, the salons open, the teams were brilliant and they all took really happy photos of them standing in their, their PPE and, you know, just brought it back into the salon and just said, okay. oh, come and visit us. We're here. We're, we've got all the stuff. And that helped bring another wave of people in. And it's just reassuring. And we've had clients do us testimonials. Um, saying, you know, how how it was very organized, you know, and how how it worked with the new rules that we've had to put in. And again, just communicating it out to those clients. So that's what we've had to kind of adjust. And I was saying to somebody the other day, post-COVID, it's like nothing's changed yet, everything's changed. Yeah. Yeah. We've still got to do what we've got to do. We can't stop marketing. We can't stop promoting things and looking into the future as to, you know, planning, because if we do that, we'll get to that point and we won't have anything. We won't have anything prepared. So we've got to take a bit of a leap of faith that it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And, but look at ways that we can be a bit clever about it. Um, so we're looking at things that we already do. How can we make them better? So we're having a bit of a, rather than, okay, we do that, let's try this, let's do this, and let's put loads of new things in. We're trying to sort of keep it to basics. This is what we do. Is that working? How can we make that a little bit better? Um, how can we, is there something we can do to talk to our existing clients and make them feel secure, but also follow our plan for other things that we already had planned in of new launches? Um, and we've got shoots planned in, but we, there are things that we have to do. We just have to tailor them slightly differently. And I'm, we're hoping that come 2021, when we launch um, a new campaign, that people are going to be mindful of the fact that we had less money to do it, that we've had to pull in every favor that we possibly can, and that we probably aren't going to, it isn't going to look exactly how it normally looks because we've had sure. to sort of make sizes. Um, but you've, you've just got to keep going. I think if you're a single salon, I think as personal as you can be to your clients is kind of what they need now. 
Yeah, that I is marketing. Uh, people forget yeah. that, don't they? Uh, that, yeah. uh, I mean, I, I love Gary Vaynerchuk. I don't know if you follow any of his stuff on Instagram or whatever, but he has a great quote where it's in one of my books where he says, uh, the, best, the, the best form of marketing is to care. And and yeah. that's that's it. It costs you nothing to 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 care and give every single client in your chair one hundred percent of your attention and focus yeah. and ability because when they walk out that door, they are in theory a walking talking you know, uh, a, a billboard for what you do. So even in times like this, I mean, you know, you're, you're a, a big company with uh, uh, 56 uh, salons in the group, yeah. but it, it, it's important that even as you've just said, budgets, you know, um, you know, get squeezed and, and uh, you have to approach things in a, in a different way because, you know, mm-hmm. no one's got like a, a bottomless pit of money. In in line with that, you know, a lot of people will say to me, they'll talk about expansion. And I, you know, look at Headmasters as a business in in England with, um, I think you said 56 salons. And, you know, you look at that and you can't help but be impressed. That's a big business. And so when people look at that and they go, how do you do that? I'm asking you, what are the core pillars? And I think you touched on one of them a minute ago, maybe without even realizing it, um, which is, you know, w- w- what are the core reasons as to why that business is so successful? There's many people that would have liked 56 salons, but never got past two or three uh, and maybe went back to one. And, and yet there's a formula there that has made that happen. If you're listening to this and you've got aspirations to expand and grow, um, what would you say the top three things are that headmasters have done consistently? I think, well, they've been consistent. Um, that's the first thing. Um, yeah. They, um, the, their original salon, Wimbledon Village, is the salon in which they their brand is kind of built on. And so when they look to open other sites, they look for sites that um, mirror that kind of client. So what kind of what, what place also looks like Wimbledon Village? Where do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. It, feel to it. It has the same sort of people in it. And that's how it sort of started, I believe, mm. with a few salons dotted around um, and they built up the company-owned salons and then started franchising. But they only franchised people who have managed one of their salons. And it's everything is done from a central point. So the franchisees have, um, they get access to all the marketing, all the branding, um, and they have um, a lot of other services, sort not done for them. That sounds wrong, but that they we done we do centrally, and I think that then that gives it. Um, it's a very trusted brand. It is, and yeah. They've made sure that every salon has that kind of feeling, and it's only recently that it's kind of expanded out a little bit further. Um, so. The central, uh, probably the furthest north is probably Camden. Um, our furthest south is actually Brighton. Um, but the guy who owns Brighton is um, knows headmasters very, very well. It has the most fantastic sound. And the clientele around there is not dissimilar to other areas. Um, yeah, so everything's sort of within a 100-mile radius or something between yeah. 56 salons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're okay. all very in the same sort of area. I mean, you'd have to ask them how they did it from start to finish, but I think they were. Um, I think they're very focused and they're very they're very good at bringing in the people that they need 
to do the jobs they need to do. So they very quickly, I think, set up a sort of head office function for to help those salons um, and obviously use their then size with their suppliers to you know work very well with the key supplier um, yeah. that we weren't yeah, maybe with or Mitchell. Yeah. Um, and so I. Th- I don't know. They're, you'd probably have to ask them how they started. No, no, I've, I've sort of written some things down that you said. I mean, I've turned my list of three into a list of five uh, yeah. based, on, based on what you said. The first one was consistency, and I think yeah. that's essential. Second one I put down was head office support and systems. A third one I put down was, and this was what you said before I asked that question, which made me ask the question, was that you were talking about how can we do this better? Because you were talking about that in the context of COVID. How can we do this better? You know, And I think that that is a driving principle of anyone who's trying to expand. Uh, and then the fourth one I put down, which you just touched on, was get in the expertise that you need, that you can't you know, do everything. So if you need an expert head of marketing, let's get in somebody, i.e. yourself, to be head of marketing. If you need someone in charge of social media or someone who's in charge of finance or you know, shop fitting or whatever, let's get those people in. And then the fifth one, was loyalty uh, because I know that you are, you know, um, well, you've been very loyal to to you know Paul Mitchell brand I work with. Um, I think you're probably the you know the you know the biggest Paul Mitchell client in the UK. I would imagine, and and I think that for anybody in business, there is a lot to be said for loyalty. You know, I think it pays dividends. You know, long term, especially in times like this. Listen, I I'm slightly biased because I used to work for product companies. But I, um, I love working with, with suppliers. And I, um, I know that, you know, people say, oh, they're trying to sell me more product. Yes. But if you're successful, they're successful. So it's, they've got a vested interest in keeping you successful. So anything that you can tap into from your yeah. supplier is a brilliant idea. You know, and the market research that I was talking about earlier was something actually that we did with L'Oreal um, because it serves them for us to know more about our clients. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. Then we will get we will potentially get more clients and be using more of their products. So but they have access to a lot more expertise than we do as a yeah. as a company. Um, mm. because they're bigger and they have more people in it and they have more departments. And you know, we used to can your digital department do this for us? Can your um uh, your social media girl do this for us? And that was kind of so we're using them as well as our salons are using us, if that sure. makes sense. It's yeah, no, totally. And I think it's really important. And we, I, I think we have a, a good relationship um, with our suppliers. And I think it works in a very symbiotic way. And we always make sure that, you know, we see what their calendars are. We see what their marketing calendars are. And then we go, right, okay, so they're doing that. We know that because they're bigger companies, they're going to be spending a lot of money on that particular launch. How mm. do we get on the back of it? <laughs> How, yeah, of what can I do to get some of that glory? And yeah. so, well, can we alter something that we were going to do next month and do it in two months' time instead, just so that it all marries up really nicely? And which yeah. is why retails now come into marketing, because we all sit together and we go, right, we've got a brilliant um, retail specialist. And she says, these are the things I've got going on. This is what's happening with the brands. So we say, brilliant, let's do a focus on this, you know, whatever it might be. Let's do a focus on hair loss this month, but how can we make that bigger? 
So we've got all of this coming in from the brands, right? What can we do? Could we offer a special um, package to people? Can we get it on our website? Can we do it all across our social? Can we look at, you know, and then we make it, it's, it's about taking every single avenue that you have and giving that message on that avenue. So whether it is on your website, whether it's on your Instagram page, whether it is on your salon window, whether it is through your PR company or through PR, if it all says the same thing at the same time, you're going to get more more bang for your buck, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just want to ask you one question around social media that I get asked a lot, and I'm intrigued as to how you handle it as a company. And that is social media guidelines, you know, um, for, for, for a company like yours, how do you manage and set guidelines around the salons social? Because one of the things that has happened over the last 10 years I mean, you know, we salon owners can argue until their head falls off about who owns the client and confidential <laughs> details and all that sort of stuff. But social media has been a game changer for all of that because the the ability to connect for the client with the hairdresser and the hairdresser with the client separate to the salon has never been greater. So how does mm-hmm. a brand like Headmasters um, handle that? What are the guidelines that you have around that for team members? Um, we actually, we have a whole dossier on that, um, which tells them, um, what they should and shouldn't say on social media, what their pages should look like. Um, in terms of each salon runs their own Instagram page, okay. um, and each of you run their own Instagram page. Um, yes, I, um, you're talking about individual hairdressers having... Yeah, yeah. So, so if I'm a hairdresser and I work for you, you keep mentioning Wimbledon Village Salon. So, yeah. so if I work at Wimbledon Village Salon for Headmasters and I have my own Instagram yeah. page, is it is it Anthony, um, you know, at Headmasters Wimbledon Village, you know, is is that my Instagram handle? So that when I leave, that relationship is no longer there. Is it something like that? We we don't actually. Right. I think okay. we are, we're fairly. I think we're fairly trusting of our staff and I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. Um, but I think there is, we have, you have to be very, very careful about what you tell people they can and can't do with their own personal sites. But of course, if they are referencing in their sites that this is where they work, then obviously they have to be careful that they don't do anything to bring our brand into disrepute. So, um, but other than that, we don't go full on, um, policing them. Um, we have had instances that we've had to deal with on social media, um, and it is very, very tricky, but we have to always go back to, um, make sure that we're following our employment law and we, it's our HR person that we're speaking to go, what can we, what can we say they can do and what they can't they do? So mm-hmm. I suppose the way we approach it really is by saying, look, you know, we want you to you we want you to get clients, we want you to be busy in the salons. Um, so we try and encourage them by posting on the salon pages and um then we will repost those. We always credit them so that we say, you know, who it was at what salon, um, and don't, don't just sort of take the images for ourselves. They do have guidelines as to whether they can show the client's face, um, you know, what they um, how their background should look and that kind of thing. Um, and also what hashtags they need to be using, what um, handles they need to be using, just so that we can then tap into them and keep an eye on them. But personally, yeah. we don't people, they can't have their own Instagram sites. 
you right. know, okay. and somebody will have their own Instagram site and they might put a picture of hair on, but then the next one's of their dog, that's up to them. You yeah, know, sure. because well, you can't police all of that and you can't police mm. it for we have a thousand staff. Right. Yeah, of course you can't. Yeah, I mean, it's, that would just be ridiculous so, to try and do that. If, yeah. To have someone monitoring a thousand different accounts. Okay. You have to come back to, um, you know, a, a trust point. Yeah. You've got to trust your you've got to trust your staff, and your staff have to trust you. And you would hope that they enjoy working for you. And if they don't, they're going to leave. And you know, but I don't think whether they have their own social media is going to affect that. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. With changing technology, so you know, uh, shopping online, e-commerce, etc., that has yeah. had a um, a huge push in this time of COVID. Um, mm. And particularly in the United States, there's a lot more of this happening. What what do you see happening with the retail uh, model, the retail opportunity in salons? How do you see that changing? Is it changing like in front of your eyes at the moment in your business? Yeah, I think that's been changing for quite a long time. I don't think it necessarily needs to go completely. Um, but I do think that there is that battle of people who – will always buy online. Um, but it still has to come back to if you've got that person there at the time. You know, I've bought things where someone's talked to me about it and I've just, oh, go on then. And I actually got home and thought, if I'd sat at home and been online and looked at it, I never would have bought it. Yeah. But somebody was there and, and you know, I saw it used and I thought, wow, that's amazing. And I bought it. And so I think there's always going to be that element. And there should still be an element of... It's not necessarily, I've always thought I said it, it's not about selling the person that product, but part of your job as a stylist is to tell someone how to look after their hair. How can you do that if you don't tell them what to use on it? It's like going to a makeup artist and she does your makeup and says, right, go and recreate it, but I'm not going to tell you what I used. It's like, well, I don't know what it was, so I'm not going to... So it's exactly the same thing, but people think, oh, well, it's just a shampoo, so they'll just use whatever they want. Well, why would they? You know, you wouldn't go to make us and go, I'm going to try and recreate what she did, but I'm not going to use any of the same stuff. Yeah, but as a, as a big brand, oh. you're not, as a big brand, you're not consciously developing uh, more of an e-commerce, you know, part to your business? We are looking at, we're looking at it. We're looking at whether um, that's something our clients would rather do once, once they know and they've had the advice that we'd rather they bought from us. And if that means that they um, they want to buy it from us online, then we're looking at that opportunity to do that. But I don't think it would ever be a massive, massive part of Headmaster's brand to sell everything on. Yeah, I just okay. don't. I they, they don't want to go that way, um, but they do want to have, they do want someone, especially in lockdown, we, were, we discussed it before lockdown. And... Then during lockdown, actually, we couldn't have done it because we because uh, everybody was furloughed, so it would have been incredibly difficult to facilitate anyway. But um, we did look at going. Okay, so if that happened again, wouldn't it be nice if the clients could go and get some of their key favourites online? But I don't think it's something that we're thinking is going to suddenly take over from having all the products in the salons for sure. Yeah. Okay, I did say there was one more question. This is the, the very last one. I promise, yeah. and I'll, I'll let you go. <laughs> um, what, what legacy? Good or bad, do you think that the salon business, the salon industry is going to be left with as a result of COVID? What do you think is going to change forever about the industry? That's a really, that's a really good one. That's a really good one. Because in my 
I'm I fall completely in two camps. One is, oh my God, it's changed forever. We're going to be the only peaceful on the high street. So that's going to change for us. Um, because I think, I don't think, I think salons are going to survive because you have to go in and have your hair cut. But I think what's around them is going to change. Um, and I was having a discussion today with um, our talent manager and he was saying, oh, we, you know, perhaps we're going to end up with a more American model where we have sort of where you go, where you drive and you have like a big retail park with so outlet stores rather than a high street. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were saying, are we going to suffer? Is it going to change? Are we going to have to change the way we work? Are more people going to want people to go to their homes? And in my really cynical mind, I think next year we'll be having a conversation going, God, do you remember when there was that COVID thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. And we all go back to what we normally do. You know, I think that's two different kinds. I think sometimes sometimes I think nothing's really changed. That goes back to my point earlier. Nothing's changed, but everything's changed. Yeah, exactly. Breaches of habit. And I think that we will, we will forget. Well, the only thing that is for sure is that time will tell. And, uh, yeah. Um, I think that there'll be some things that'll be with us forever, uh, but they may very well be good things as well in terms of standards, hygiene standards, yeah. et cetera. I think we'll be Absolutely. better than ever and that will be with us forever. And I think that's got to be a good thing because I think in many ways that some of that stuff had slipped. Uh, but yeah, I do agree with you. The, uh, the, the high street or the mall or, you know, main street, whatever it is, is going to look different because the uptake in um, uh, e-commerce, online shopping has been yeah. phenomenal and the, yeah. the victim will be the high street. And so uh, our, our streets will look different. And um, uh, I think the way that people purchase stuff will start to become different as well. But that won't necessarily be at the loss to the salon. I think there'll be more affiliate programs and that sort of stuff that'll that'll still work for uh, you know for both parties. So we need to uh, wrap up there. So um, Sophie Hill, I just want to thank you so much for your time being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Uh, you've had a lot of great um, insights to uh, uh, contribute, and I know our audience we've got a lot out of it. Any final words? Um, no, just thank you. It's been lovely chatting to you. I could talk to you for hours, but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> you probably shouldn't. It's uh, past your dinner time. Um, it is. <laughs> well and truly. Uh, so uh, if you're listening to this podcast with Sophie Hill and you've enjoyed it, then please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, and uh, we would really appreciate you for doing that. So to wrap up, Sophie Hill, thank you for being on the Grow My Salon Business podcast. You're very welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success. 